Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for October 9th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. User comments, those familiar streams of opinion, feedback, and occasional bad manners that accompany news articles, blog posts, and other web content, haven't exactly caught fire in online scholarly articles. But some see better prospects for a more granular approach to annotation, one that lets users attach comments and criticism to individual objects, a block of text, an image, a piece of data, within a paper. To talk about the future of that kind of inline annotation, I'm joined by Peter Brantley, the Director of Scholarly Communication at Hypothesis, that's H-Y-P-O-T-H-E-S dot I-S on the web. It's a startup that is working to create an open layer of annotation on top of the web in general and scholarly content in particular. Peter, thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a joy. Uh, well, let's start by talking just about what annotation is and maybe what it isn't. Uh, many websites obviously have comments attached to articles, uh, and for scholarly content at least, uh, those comment sections seems, seem to sort of have had a mixed record uh, in terms of usage. So why would annotation be, be different in your view? Yeah, annotation is a broader concept than the kind of comments that most people are familiar with through normal websites. In the academic uh, frame, an annotation can mean a wide variety of different kinds of interactions with articles. So, for example, if you're reading a journal article and you find an assertion in a paragraph somewhere in the middle of the article, the annotation specification is constructed so that you can make a comment about that specific assertion and have it visually line up with that paragraph in the article. So instead of having to constantly bounce back and forth within an article to the bottom of the, of the article, um, to the middle of the article, um, which is very obviously disruptive in a hypertext frame, it's possible to read comments or engagements or thoughts of others as you're reading along or as you're interacting with the document on the web. This is, I think, a more intuitive kind of interaction for scholarly work than in a traditional, more print-based footnote or in-note model mm-hmm. of comments. And your company, Hypothesis, uh, sort of go, is a step beyond that in this notion of open annotation. Can you tell us you know, what the vision is there? Right. Annotation um, has been tried by many different companies over the last five years particularly, but extending beyond that as well. Most of those efforts have failed, and we think that the primary reason that they failed is that they've been proprietary in one way or another. Many annotation sites or services have tried to create essentially silos of content where you have to import an article into a service and then annotate within it. For us, working with an open standard that has been promulgated by the W3C means that the kind of annotation that we support can be viewed across multiple websites and that as an author of an annotation, I can compile my annotations across, across a wide variety of journals and manage them in one place. 
these are the kinds of strengths that have been lacking in the more proprietary efforts that we've seen up until now. And that's what you, I guess, mean when you refer to this as a as a layer of annotation on top of the web, rather than just a sort of an an, uh, an annotation functionality that 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 a a website owner might uh, might choose to put into place. That's right. So the the key advantage with open annotation uh, in terms of the experience of journal articles uh, is that um, the annotation lives independently of the article. Mm-hmm. When you make an annotation against an article, you're not actually altering or changing the article on the publisher's website. Mm-hmm. The annotation is associated with the article through a, a URL, through a, a network address, mm-hmm. but the annotations live elsewhere. That enables the author or a publisher or anyone else who's interested in the comments that might be generated against the body of material to, to look and manage and mine and utilize those annotations separately from the publications themselves as long as the annotations are openly accessible on the network. Well, it seems like something that, if done poorly, though, uh, could be quite distracting if you were if you were going through an article. I mean, it's just another information stream. How do you envision the user interface working? How do you envision what you know what the user actually sees? Do you have any models for that? The user experience for annotations is really important, and I think in many ways we're just in the beginning stages of trying to understand what's most compelling, but I think that there's several really clean examples of it out there. First of all, I think our own hypothesis annotation, which is a right pane model in a web browser, is pretty straightforward, and there's been a lot of attention and thought paid to um, creating a fairly simple intuitive interface. Uh, I think some of the other models that are really uh, interesting out there uh, include, in the non-academic space, Medium, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a startup for uh, short to medium length uh, fiction and nonfiction, has a very intuitive annotation framework. And then I would also point to a, a software layer called Lens, which uh-huh. is an open source software product that was uh, developed by a couple of individuals in Berkeley and in Austria. Uh, Lens is being used as a user interface against the biomed journal eLife. And it's a very intuitive way of interacting with mm-hmm. objects in the paper and, and an annotation um, in that user interface construct is just another object like a chart or a mm-hmm. graph or a citation. Hmm. Well, let me flip. Let me sort of flip the question around a bit um, in terms of thinking about the the whole signal to noise you know problem, if you will, on on the web. We we do hear peop- that people are sort of inundated with information and are are you know having real difficulty kind of, or the the sort of main problem is essentially filtering out the noise and focusing on what's important. Um, I, I know that there's an artic- there's an argument that something like these annotations you c- can actually help surface um, useful content, but it also seems to me that this does create sort of another <laughs> another stream of information to manage, if you will. Um, you know, it, you could you could imagine that an author, in addition to other sort of responses to their to their uh, uh, research would now have to kind of would now have to kind of pay attention to this new stream of annotations. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, are we going to need you know tools, if you will, to manage the tool uh, of annotations? 
Well, I think what we'll wind up with is services that end up providing ways of managing annotations and providing extra added value to authors as well as to readers. And, and you're absolutely right. And I think even at a, a lower level, it would be naive to expect that as we move into more of a read-write world, that people won't end up just scribbling over the web. And, mm-hmm. and certainly, you know, there are going to be comments, particularly on public sites, that have very little value or, or no value at all. Um, and so I think a couple things come into play here. One is that um, really integral to our vision is working with the reputation fabric, so generating reputation for contributors um, and also marrying that to identity. And this is particularly important in the academic space. Where now, you could, could, I, imagine... could, I just stop you, could I just stop you for a minute there? So when you talk about the reputation fabric, you're really talking about the repu- – you know, about – the sort of reputation of, uh, of annotators themselves uh, in terms of filtering the annotations? That's absolutely right. So, you know, presumably if, if I start to annotate something on um, annotation or scholarly communication, over time my reputation would, knock on wood, uh, be relatively high and my annotations uh, would be persistent and fairly visible. If someone who was more expert in uh, woodworking came online and started annotating an article on scholarly communication, um, then in the absence of any uh, indication that they have a, a backstore of information in this space, their reputation would be, um, you know, deprecated in comparison to people hmm. who have been working in the field. Hmm. And, and so in this kind of scenario, you're able to surface individuals who have more valuable insights uh, to share over a given material. And married with, and particularly an academic identity profile, uh, I think the, the most obvious is ORCID, mm-hmm. um, then the combination of being able to obtain a persistent ID or pseudonymous ID alongside a reputation score associated with that ID provides for very sophisticated and, and uh, you know, very useful filtering Mm-hmm. of comments and annotations that enable people to surface what's very valuable. So if I'm reading, for example, an article that might be at the interface of um, statistical methods as well as uh, biomedicine, and I'm most interested in statistical comments on, on the method that was used and, and why it was an effective choice, uh, then I can select out the annotation layer for those individuals who have a high statistical reputation score or have some kind of statistical professional identity mm-hmm. that makes those comments more relevant to me. Well, that's that's very interesting, and it, it kind of comes to my sort of the question that's been uh, that I that's been in the back of my mind here, which is the question of scale. Um, it seems like everything you've described has to have a lot of scale behind it to be effective, um, and yet. You know, I mean, you're building a business now, or you're building a you're building a, a a service now that that clearly can't start out with that kind of scale. How do you survive and kind of demonstrate value while while actually building the scale to be valuable, if you will? Right, and I think again here there are two separate facets, and and I think it's really very instructive for us at Hypothesis that uh, annotation was originally incorporated into the web browser by Mark Andreessen and Eric Dinna. Um, the authors of, of Netscape back in 1993, in Mosaic, rather. And, you know, they had to pull that functionality out primarily because the kind of distributed 
storage layer that in many ways now exists on the net, very uh, sophisticated means of providing lightweight, scaled storage and retrieval um, across a distributed network just did not exist in 1993. Hmm. And we have that. So that at least at the, the layer of physical scaling, I think you know, we are at a level of sophistication now that we can start thinking about integrating this kind of functionality more deeply again into the browser. I think that the other problem that, uh, that your question alludes to is, is really what's called the cold start problem. You know, in, under what situations can a new service or, or a newly perceived service actually start amassing usage and generate the kind of activity that makes further usage of that service worthwhile? Mm. And there have been a number of successful examples of that, uh, Twitter being, I think, probably the most prominent right now, mm. which really started out from nothing. And, um, you know, it was a byproduct of a, a company called uh, Odeo that was producing, um, you know, podcast support and, and then mushroomed uh, after a, a slow takeoff. Um, but I, I think our approach to that a hypothesis is to look at communities that we think have particularly high affinity for annotation while at the same time making a general purpose tool available. Mm-hmm. And so the, the high affinity populations are obviously scholarly communications, news, journalism, um, and then we're particularly fascinated by education, both in a traditional classroom context as well as, well as MOOCs or um, small private online classes, increasingly called SPOCs, and, and then contexts like open government, uh, where there's a desire to have engagement with legislation or proposed bills um, or policy documents. These are all areas where people have really wanted to engage deeply with documents and have just been lacking the mechanisms to do so. And we feel like once people are able to do so easily and are able to utilize open technology so that their annotations can be referenced across many different kinds of documents or publishers, uh, then we'll see some um, quite active take-up. Well, to make that kind of scenario work, do you really need to have one system to kind of rule them all? Or, I mean, I know there are other organizations experimenting with annotation and building inline, you know, systems of this kind. And you mentioned Medium. I've seen it on the Quartz site. Can you comment on that? Yes, certainly. I think, you know, there are obviously two key scenarios here. One of them is that Every site introduces its own unique flavor of annotation, and the annotations live on that site, and they're not shareable. But particularly in an academic environment, you can see the value of being able to share across publishers, share across repositories and blogs and other avenues of publication. And at a hypothesis, we are very, very much supporting open standards and open software. Mm -hmm. And so we feel that as long as the annotation model follows the standard open specification and makes use of common underlying code, then annotation will have the advantage of being mm-hmm. an open technology. Mm-hmm. And already many of the um, more academically oriented forms of annotation, um, which covers not just text, but notably also images and video, make use of a common early underlying piece of software that continues to be developed by the Open Knowledge Foundation called Annotator. And having that common underlying layer of software enables all of these projects, including Hypothesis, to uh, guarantee some level of interoperability so that annotations using 
any of the code that gets uh, developed um, on top of annotator um, is is inherently shareable. Well, you you did allude a few moments ago to different publishing platforms and and kind of how this how this plays into the scholarly uh, communication. Uh, scene. Um, let's turn this toward the relationship with scholarly publishing in particular. Uh, Hypothesis is not a publisher per se, and the company's website stresses that this is very much a user-driven feature and is not sort of owned by anyone uh, such as a publisher. So, you know, that being said, where, what do you see as the connection between publishers and the system you're trying to build, or, or indeed is there a connection? Oh, I think there could be a very strong one. Publishers could uh, adopt annotation or support annotation in several different ways. The most straightforward or easiest is simply to invite annotation to take place on their on their publications online. Um, and there are ways that they can do that in a way that makes sort of the generation of annotations mm-hmm. more tractable. Um, and for publishers that are producing output in both HTML and PDF, for example, as long as they use standard naming protocols for those documents so that they can be associated, then it, it will be possible for us to have an annotation appear uh, in either platform as long as both are online. So in mm-hmm. other words, if you make an annotation in a PDF online of an article, that annotation would appear in the corresponding HTML version of the article. So those are little things that publishers can do. I think a step up from that or a more sophisticated model that might be adopted by a more commercial publisher, a society publisher, or an aggregator, or a publishing platform, is if they could take our open source software and essentially run it themselves. By doing that, what they could do is create more sophisticated tiered services for members or subscribers so that a range of functions that could be supported um, at multiple levels of access. Um, you know, I think one of my, my standard examples of this is that you could imagine a newspaper wanting to support annotation but providing a value-add service for their subscribers, and, and perhaps that is uh, that they, uh, the newspaper, are able to uh, solicit um, an op-ed and then comment on that op-ed mm-hmm. from other invited experts. That kind of dialogue maybe is a value-add that's only uh, a uh, viewable mm-hmm. by uh, that newspaper subscribers. And so similarly, you can think of other tools, um, also analytics tools that might be available uh, to scholars or to researchers mm-hmm. uh, who are subscribers or members of the society uh, that wouldn't be available to uh, just a, um, a raw or, or uh, uh, you know, unaccessed viewer. Well, you gave, a, you gave a very interesting uh, presentation uh, last month at the Publishing Business Conference in New York, um, and you seem in the course of that presentation you uh, talked about the relevance of this to peer review in particular. Could you just uh, elaborate that, on that for a moment or two? Sure, I, I think peer review is a, a really strong case for annotation because, in many ways, peer review is about annotating a document. Um, in the course of a standard peer review process. I, as a reviewer, am making notes that I then compile and aggregate against the referenced article. And, and those comments are then sent in, and then they're reviewed by uh, often an editor or an editorial body, and, and then uh, decisions are made about whether or not the journal uh, wishes to publish or to seek revisions and so forth. That's, in many ways, a very inefficient process, and annotation can address some of those, the 
uh, barriers to smooth operation very directly. So instead of compiling my notes and then essentially writing a paper about a paper, um, annotation enables a reviewer to make comments directly in the article uh, or associated with the article. Again, they're not changing the article per se, mm -hmm. but, but they're able to establish or, or to associate comments uh, with the submission and then provide that into the editorial uh, community. Now, that can be closed. That does not have to be open. Open software doesn't mean that it's publicly available. Open software just means you're using open source software. Mm -hmm. So the peer review process can still be gated. It can still be private. But the ability for a reviewer to manage those comments goes up by an order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. uh, as a reviewer, you know, I often generate insights into my work uh, that uh, come about through the reviewing process by, by utilizing an annotation framework. Those thoughts, those insights are available back to me. And at the same time, across publications as a reviewer, my annotations are retrievable or manageable by me. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a huge benefit for the reviewer. For the publisher, they're able to sort of manage the peer review process, I think, much more nimbly. They can marry reputation metrics uh, to a pool of, of potential reviewers. Um, it might be possible uh, through analytics or through mining of semantic terms or thesauri or um, this known, um, you know, statistically improbable um, know, phrases to determine more readily whether or not there are um, multiple parallel submissions uh, with other journals um, and so forth. So utilizing an annotation framework enables a range of, of far more sophisticated management of the entire peer review process uh, than is available today because today it's, it's managed primarily through relatively mm, heavy or complicated independent software processes or platforms that have to essentially assume the identity of a content management system. All right. Well, let's close by fast-forwarding to maybe five or ten years from now. Um, if the vision that Hypothesis is pursuing does indeed catch on, and if open annotation of scholarly objects becomes common, uh, particularly in a framework of linked open data, what does scholarship and publishing actually look like down the line? So five or ten years out, I think what we're hoping for is a, a sense that annotation is just an assumed functionality of the web, uh, that, it's, that it's really interwoven and in really the same way uh, or, or same naive way that I think viewers approach, um, you know, entering now a search term uh, in a browser and expecting to, to obtain um, useful results almost immediately. So that the read-write access a layer of uh, the network um, is integrated into many different kinds of interactions and certainly far beyond the uh, sort of simple web browser interface that we have today as more and more information is presented in mobile fashion and using alternative interfaces like tiles um, and, and stacks and, and so mm -hmm. forth. I think annotation will be part of that. I think more fundamentally, you know, what starts to happen is that when you annotate something, you're adding knowledge and you're adding information um, to the web and, and encouraging um, a dialogue and a knowledge growth that just would not have been possible before. Hmm. Um, and, and particularly, I think we can see this in, in academic literature. The people are annotating um, concepts with concepts. 
then utilizing concepts like linked data to retrieve and, and, and associate information from across the web enables um, associations to form, um, enables people to have insights, um, enables a kind of, of semantic map of our um, online publications that we just would not have mm-hmm. uh, available to us um, without it. And, and so I think that kind of intelligent web is something that annotation helps to provide. Peter Brantley, thanks very much. Well, thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for dropping into the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for October 9, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appétit.